Okay, we're studying the book of James, and uh, we're going to we're going to work our way through the book of James in a rather slow manner because of my uh, erratic attendance over the next several, uh, well, at least the next two months. Uh, I'll be preaching up in Hebrew again next Sunday. And then I'm here for a Sunday, and then I'm gone for a Sunday, and then I'm here for a couple Sundays. But anyway, Doug knows all that, and uh, appreciate your uh, diligent patience with me on that. But anyway, uh, what we're looking at today is the book of James, and I have suggested to you right at the very beginning that James is written very, very early. And so that's one of the things we have to take into account when we look at the passage fitting it in to the context both geographically as well as chronologically and time-wise. And persecution is intensifying with these people. And one of the things that God tells these people very, very early on is that trials are going to be coming. And we saw in the first part of the book of James that he wants us to respond by way of two very important proper attitudes. Attitude number one is we're to welcome them. Attitude number two is don't blame God, don't say, don't say to God, it's all your fault, we're in this situation because you've allowed it and stuff like that. But he goes on and he tells us that uh, in having the right attitude toward trials, having the right attitude toward God, here's the kind of behavior that he wants us to involve ourselves in. And so if you will, look at your Bible, James chapter 1. Let me read through the section that I want to get through today. James chapter 1, starting with verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I am going to suggest to you that that is the outline of the book of James. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And as we look at this particular outline, he's going to be telling us what it means to be swift to hear, what it means to be slow to anger, and then what it, or excuse me, uh, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. He goes on in verse 20 and says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doer the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks into his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was or the kind of person he is. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion, 
in the sight of our God and Father to visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So, swift to hear. Swift to hear is going to involve three things. Number one, it's going to be more than mere listening. Number two, it is going to be more than mere morality. It is also going to be more than just passive faith. And so we're going to be looking today specifically at it's more than mere listening, more than mere listening. Now, I promise you today that we're probably going to look at some things and I'm going to present a slightly different understanding of some of these things than you've probably heard before, which uh, we can interact about. But notice, if you will, starting with verse 20, he says, in the first place, he's writing to Christians, and he says to born-again believers, therefore putting aside all filthiness, and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. If you will look closely at the little word, putting aside, putting aside. Now that is a very interesting word because basically, depending on your translation, therefore laying aside in the New King James, therefore putting aside in the New American Standard. Uh, some of your Bibles maybe have something a little bit different than that, but how is this word used in the New Testament? Well, the thing that I find interesting is if you look at some other places where this word is used, he says in Romans 13, lay aside certain kinds of deeds, lay aside falsehood in Ephesians, Lay aside every weight in Romans chapter or Hebrews chapter 12, and then putting aside all malice. Now these are what you might call figurative ways or metaphorical ways this word is used. But what is the literal usage of this word? It is used in a literal way one time in the New Testament, and that is over in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now, <clears throat> I will now demonstrate how to lay aside this stuff. Are you ready? <clears throat> right there. You just take it off and you lay it aside. I've been waiting to do that since I got here. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that James seems to indicate to us that laying aside or setting aside habits that are unproductive in our Christian experience is just as easy as taking off a garment. Does anybody understand that? Is it really that easy? Uh, 
It probably isn't, but James says, hey, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to just stop doing it. Now, I believe he is talking to born-again Christians here. And I believe that he is suggesting to us that the moment we become part of the family of God, there are certain habits, there are certain conduct in our life that ought to end like that. Now, we don't do that to become part of the family of God. We do that because we are part of the family of God. My father was a Roman Catholic growing up, raised in a staunch Roman Catholic family. He trusted Christ at a little tiny Bible study up in Dutch Harbor, Alaska during World War II. And there were just three of them. And the moment he trusted Christ as his savior, from what I understand from diaries and things he told us, the next day he got rid of 19 pipes. He was apparently an avid smoker. Now I am in no way suggesting that smoking and stopping smoking get you to heaven. But he recognized immediately that this was a habit that was not going to be productive for you for him in the Christian experience and what he is saying in this passage is folks there are certain kinds of conduct in the trials of life that need to cease immediately and I'll be honest with you it's tough, it's difficult. But notice the next thing he tells us, in doing this, what is going to happen at the end of the verse? He says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Save your souls. Now, I'm going to tell you some things about saving the soul that I'm sure you have likely never heard of before. If you can prove me wrong, fine. But you won't be able to, okay? <laughs> uh, the interesting thing about this phrase, save the soul, is the abundance of abuse this phrase has suffered. Uh, saving the soul or the salvation of the soul is what is being talked about. James talks about this two places in his book. The first place is right here in verse 21 of chapter 1. Receive the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Notice how the word is implanted. It's uh, it's, it's, if you please, transplanted within us. It's already in there. Then he says in chapter 5, verse 20, turn a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What is meant by saving the soul? Now, I know what the evangelists say. 
and I have heard it scores of times. But I want to suggest to you that there is a biblical way to understand the term save the soul, which is probably a little bit foreign to our thinking because of the misuse of this phrase. Let me give you this thought. This is one of the most influential sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. It occurs in every single one of the Gospels, and we're going to look at one, uh, and they're pretty much all similar. But let's look for a moment at Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, he says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, this is not an invitation to justification salvation. I think that this is an invitation to discipleship. If you want to be a true follower and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, here's what you have to do. Why is that so important? He says, for whoever wishes to save his life, and the Greek word is suke. Is there an English word that we get from the word suke? Anybody? Psychology. All right. Whoever wishes to save his life, his suke or soul, shall lose it. But whoever loses his life or his suke for my sake shall find it. He's reinforcing what he has just said in the previous verse. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul. Now notice, why they changed the translation in the English, I will never know. But it is exactly the same Greek word. He forfeits his soul or his life, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul or his life? The point I'm trying to make is that the word life and the word soul is exactly the same Greek word throughout the New Testament. Exactly the same. Now, let me show you some places where this word is used. The Greek word for life and soul is suke, which never refers to the immaterial part of man. Where did the idea that the word soul or suke refer to the immaterial part of man. You know who invented that concept? Plato. Somehow it gravitated into the New Testament, which should have never happened, but that was the idea. And we can thank St. Augustine in the third century for gravitating that into our thinking. Let me show you some passages in the New Testament where the word suke is used. First of all, over in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Just let me give you a, sh a couple of these. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Notice what he says. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your suke life as to what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor for the body as to what you shall put on. 
Is not life, suke, more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now notice, he's talking about life. He's not talking about the immaterial part of you. He's talking about the way you live your life. Another passage is over, well, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He gives his life a ransom for many. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you another one. Uh, well, let's just turn to John chapter 10. And if you want to take these down, go ahead and do so. John chapter 10. Notice, if you will, verse 11 and verse 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his suke life for the sheep. Verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life, suke, for the sheep. So what is he talking about? He's not talking about the immaterial part of you. He's talking about the life, your being. Uh, let me go to the next one because we'll run out of time if we looked at all these. That is its reference in the New Testament. But notice, if you will, the reference in the Old Testament. When the translators of the Hebrew Bible translated it into Greek 250 years before Christ came. It's called the Subtuagent. They had this same exact understanding. And look, if you will, at Genesis chapter, and I gotta turn around and look at Genesis chapter 32. Thirty-two, verse thirty. He says this. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, "I have seen God face to face. Yet my life, soul, has been preserved." What's he talking about? The immaterial part of him? No, he's talking about I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Another place. Uh, and you can look at some of these, but look, let's look at Psalm 22, verse 20 and 21. Psalm 22, 20 and 21. Is that right? Yes, 20 and 21. Deliver my soul or life from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Thou dost answer me. What's he talking about? He's saying, and he's talk, this is a reference to David, who is also a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, save my life. Save my physical life. Let me look at one more, and that is Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16, and we are looking at verse number 17. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his waves preserves his 
life, his suke. So what I am suggesting is that the idea of saving your life literally throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament doesn't refer to being delivered from hell. It means preserving your physical life. What did, what did Christ mean when he said in Matthew 10 where he says, don't be afraid of those that can destroy the body, but those that can destroy the soul and the body in hell? I am not sure. I'd have to look at that one. Okay. I, I, but what I am suggesting is the idea of saving the soul is something James would have heard Christ talk about when he quoted those different passages from the Gospels. And so, James, uh, I have, I'll have to look at that. Let, let me take a look at that, uh, and I'll, I'll get back with you on it. Okay. But uh, in James chapter 1, he is saying... It remains for scholars of historical theology to discern how the phrase ever became connected to the idea of deliverance from hell. We gotta save your soul. It's often used in evangelism. But that concept is totally foreign to the New Testament. Totally foreign to the Old Testament. The idea that James is presenting here is that sin will destroy your physical life. And if you get rid of sin in your physical life as a born-again believer, you'll live longer. Now, I'm not in any way, and I've said this already, I'm not in any way suggesting that people that die early or prematurely because of health reasons or something else have abundance of sin in their life. That's not the point. The point is, there's a principle. Sin shortens life. The absence of sin has a tendency to lengthen life. Any questions about that? The next thing. Rather than the phrase saving the soul being a reference to being rescued from hell, it is more likely conveying the idea of preserving your physical life. So that's exactly what James is saying here in verse 21, I think, where he says, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your physical life. Any comments or questions? I know that's a brand new thought, but at the same time, it certainly does seem to me that when Christ was talking about saving our soul in those passages in the Gospels, and James, who perhaps most likely heard Christ say that, he knew what he was talking about is not the immaterial part, but the physical life. Any comments or questions? By the way, when you trust Christ as your savior, you are saved, all right, 
physically, spiritually, the whole works. But he's talking about from a practical perspective right here. All right, let's go on. He goes on and he says, now, if you work from the point of saving your life because of the implanted word in you, real hearing is proving yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. <clears throat> Are you ready for more interesting stuff? <laughs> All right, here we go. Let's, uh, let's, let's explore this. Hearing means more than mere listening. Uh, it is not simply auditing the scriptures, but applying the scriptures. Uh, during my college and seminary days, as probably some of you, I audited a class. Now, when you audit a class in college or grad school, you have to pay for it, but what? You don't have to take those exams. And I wanted the material, but I didn't want to be held to knowing that material at the end of the semester. So what he is telling us is it's easy to come to church to study the Bible and audit the Bible and never apply it. I heard a preacher say years and years ago, people often come to church with a thimble they want filled and they spill it on the way out. <laughs> and we're all guilty of that. You understand what I'm saying? We want some truth from God, but then we trip at the door and it's gone. So what is he telling us? He is telling us that if we look intently and abide by it, that's being swift to hear. And then as we become a doer, we are swift to apply. So that's the whole point. When we listen to the word and apply it, that's being a doer. It is more than mere listening. My wife has a theory. Dear, would you like to tell about your theory of the sower? Well, and he says, receive the implanted word. I think he's going back to the parable of the sower where your heart soil, every time you hear God's word, you have one of four responses. And this is believers and unbelievers alike. And it's the parable's not talking about who is saved and who is not saved. You just have, every time you hear, you can, you know, Satan can steal it, it can be choked, it can, it can uh, the fruit can uh, fade away, or it can be profitable if it's implanted in your good heart soil. She's, she's, read a she's written a couple journal articles on that. I don't know what kind of the response there is out there to that, but most people like to see that as, here's trusting Christ. But if you look at closely at the parable, 
anytime, like she said, anytime you hear the word, you can have one of four responses. I can remember during my uh, Bible school and seminary days, and some of you probably go back to some of these eras as well, uh, we had chapel every single day of the week. Uh, well, at seminary, we had it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because we didn't meet on Monday. But, uh, and every, every, every chapel, there's a different speaker. And you can tune out or tune in. And you get the idea, don't you? So let me, if I may, make a suggestion to you that when he says in verse 25, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. So, here's a guy looking at the complete law of liberty. That's what the Bible is called in this passage. The perfect law of liberty. Now, the question that we have to ask, and this I know is a new thought, Look, if you will, at verse 25, because he says, for the one who looks at himself, uh, verse 23, you're right. If, a one, if one hears the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. This can be understood two ways. Ten minutes to go, all right. Uh, it's interesting that this particular word is the word from which we get the word Genesis. And it is translated birth four of the five times in the New Testament. Uh, I've changed the first one, the record of the genealogy or the birth of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ, Luke 1.23, and many will rejoice at his birth. I'm going to suggest to you that we change the translation from natural to your birth face. All right, we all have a birth face. We have a physical birth face. What you are doing when you read the scriptures and the illustration that is right here in front of us, you are looking into the perfect law of liberty and you are seeing your birth face. Now, let me tell you what the traditional understanding of this is. And just to be a little outside of the box, I have another suggestion. We men spend a fraction of the time in front of a mirror than our wives do. They're going to get in trouble. <laughs> and men, we love it, all right? We love it. We don't mind it. But I don't know about you. It takes me about 30 seconds to comb my hair, and I'm out of there. 
30 seconds, okay, everything's okay, I'm out of there. Are there any other men in the room that have the same tendency? Come on, be honest. Thank you, thank you. One, two honest men. Good. Uh, we just don't spend that much time in front of the mirror. And if there's a flaw, we say, I know my face ain't no star. I don't mind it because I'm behind it. The folks up front get the jar. <laughs> uh, the tendency is that we look and we don't care and we walk away. Now that is the normal, natural interpretation of this phrase. We look at our natural face in the mirror and walk away disregarding the flaws, disregarding the things that need to be corrected. I want to suggest another possible way of understanding this. And if we had time, we could go through the New Testament and I think there would probably be enough evidence for this particular approach. The birth face that he is talking about is not our physical birth face, but our spiritual birth face. Does everybody catch that? Let me uh, flip to the next one here. Which birth face is being referred to? Your physical one or your spiritual one? The moment you were regenerated, the moment you trusted Christ as your savior, you were, if you pleased, born again. Born into the family of God. How do you know how to live as a member of the family of God? Do you look at the mirror and see the old self? No, you look at the mirror of the Word of God and you see your new self. This is the way you ought to be. Does everybody understand what I'm talking about at this point? It's easy for us to read through the scriptures and the scriptures say, you need to put this off put this off, put this off, but you need to do this, do this, do this, do this. And we have a tendency, do we not, to say, well, we'll just take care of that later. We'll just take care of that later. I'm going to suggest, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, I'm going to suggest that what he's talking about here is the spiritual birth face that all of us have as we look into the scriptures. Why would I say this? Because in the previous context, and if you will look back at verse uh, 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting sand. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Those are birth words. That's the regeneration process by the word of truth so that we might, as it were, be the first fruits among his creation. The whole point 
of us being born again or regenerated is that we're new people now, brand new people. And the only way to figure out how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as brand new people, part of the family of God, is to look <coughs> at the scriptures. Any comments, questions? Really? <laughs> uh, does it make sense? I mean, if it doesn't make sense to you, that's fine. But uh, the, the thing that tips me off that this is the way it should be understood is we're looking at what? The complete law of liberty. And that's the scriptures. And yes, it's telling us the way we were, but it's also telling us the way we ought to be. All right, yes, go right ahead. I, I'm missing the subtlety here, I guess, because I think all that we got, you're, you're dead on what, what's going on here, Jay. But I, thought, I think James is just, just saying it's an analogy. Just like you look right. here and you see that you got pimples and you don't want to think about it, you go on anyway. When you look in the law of liberty, you see that you fall short and you don't want to deal with it. That's, yep, that's. Why, why couldn't it be from Corinthians where the natural man receiveth not the things of God? Where they're spiritually he looks in the mirror and he doesn't really see what he should see. Why couldn't it be that? Yeah. It could. <laughs> but then, isn't there a place also in Corinthians that talks about looking, uh, I forget what it is, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, where he talks about... Uh, Let me get it right here. Isn't there, I forget exactly where it was, where uh, he talks about looking at the image of Christ and, and Transformed. yeah, the transformation. I forget what, I thought that was in 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. 3.18. How's that? 3.18. 3.18, well, you're right. We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. That's a possibility as well. All right, now that you're totally confused, <laughs> any comments? I, I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I am just saying that there is a possible other way to look at this as well. And I know I have heard, we look at the scriptures, we find out, hey, we're not supposed to be that, we, we walk away. But I think at the same time, there's a the possibility that we look at the scriptures, find out how we are supposed to be, 
and he expects us to change, but we also just walk away. Does that kind of make sense? <laughs> Good. Hey, thank you, folks. I have to, uh, I get to speak in the next one, and if you didn't like what I said in this class, you really won't like what I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> thank you for your attention. We are, uh, we're dismissed. <laughs>